Sonic States. Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 117. Um, you're live. This is a live recording of Sonic State uh, podcast number 117. Uh, you can find us at sonicstate.com forward slash live. Art future Wednesdays at around about 4 p.m. UK time. Anyway, um, hello to all our people in the chat room. Someone's doc has got a very uh, bold red font. You're certainly standing out. Anyway, um, so hello and welcome to all my guests. Anyway, let's say first to hello to Dave Robinson, editor of ProSoundNewsEurope.com, online and in print. Hello. How are you, Dave? I'm uh, very good. I'm looking forward to uh, the Music Producers Guild um, awards dinner tomorrow night when um, Brian Eno is going to be uh, given an award for, um, the I think it's the Joe Meek Award for Innovation he's going to be presented with. Oh. So um, it's the first time the, um, the MPG have had an awards ceremony. And it marks, and it's, it's a very significant year for, for guys like like us, as it were, uh, because um, they are awarding a Producer of the Year award, and that's sponsored by the Brits. And that means that the following Thursday, next Thursday, when uh, the Brit Awards is being held, they will recognise uh, the Producer of the Year. Um, and that will be that will be decided tomorrow, and then will be carried forward to uh, to be recognised um, at the Brit Awards next Thursday. So it marks, I think, it's the first time in over ten years that the Brits have recognised um, a producer. So it's um, it's a good time for uh, people in music production. Yeah, who's that going to be? Do you reckon Simon Cowell? Um, <laughs> there are three nominees, and uh, I can't remember the three. I know Bernard Butler's been nominated. For um, because it's got to be um, it's a UK award, don't forget. So right. um, I Bring think Bernard Butler's been nominated for his work on the Duffy album, and um, you know I can't remember off the top of my head who the other two are. I think it might be Steve Mack, but um, no, I can't remember. But anyway, all will be revealed tomorrow. So well, it sounds uh, like at, a month of parties for you then. Well, I was at the Tel Production Awards on Monday night, and um, Bill Wyman was there presenting a, a Lifetime Achievement Award to Claude Nobbs, who's the guy, he sounds like a disease of the penis, but uh, he's actually the guy who started the Montreux Jazz Festival 40 years ago. So, uh, yeah, I'm having quite a big week. Thanks very much. Excellent. Gosh, I haven't left the office for a week. Well, anyway, Dave Robinson can be found at prosoundnewseurope.com, where you can find out all things. Um, and the about- new, as you said, the new, the new issue, the February issue, just went online this last couple of days, so uh, check that out. Okay, brilliant, will do. And that um, brings me to my next guest, which is Mark Tinley, or who is Mark Tinley, who's just released his new book. How's it going, I Mark? have. It's all going very well. I was listening to the WNYC podcast this morning, and they were talking about praying mantises. Praying <laughs> mantises, knobs. Seems to use <laughs> really. Claude, what did he say? Fr- the guy's name was Claude Knob. Friend of Claude Knobs, yeah. Yeah. Well, praying mantises have barbed knobs, apparently, so that when they make love to the female praying mantis, if a previous praying mantis has been in there already, the barbs on the praying mantis's knob will pull all the other praying mantises sperm out apparently they only leave their sperm there to impregnate the female praying mantis with their sperm so she must have a great fun time of that i would have thought (laughs) so i don't know why i've gone there really no i'm I'm glad there you go there's a bit of natural history for you folks just in case you weren't aware of the uh the the inner workings of the praying mantis mantis. and what about uh, what about ducks as well i was Apparently, Let's not go there. All Let's... dark with a fourteen-inch-long penis. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to have to flag this podcast now. <laughs> what? Because he said the word penis. I don't know. I suppose you can, but you're not allowed to laugh. Being quite careful. <laughs> I didn't say it. I didn't say beep. <laughs> no. Well, Mark, I'm glad you sound like you've been um, informing yourself heavily. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark can be found at where? Are we, where's the best place to find you at the moment? I think let's send them straight to the book at the moment. They can go to logicofattraction.com. So logicofattraction.com is where you can yeah. find what Mark's been up to. That's his book. And uh, anyway, thank you very much for joining us, Mark. And, of course, we've also got Dave Spears from g4software.com. Ooh. Hello. How are you, Dave? 
Yes. Have you got a knob gag, Dave? No, but I'll tell you what, he started a whole <laughs> lot of interesting, colourful um, t- chat in the chat room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. No, actually, I'm in panic because I've lost my Rizzlers. <laughs> oh, you can't smoke. Oh, what a terrible, terrible concept. There's only one thing worse than a smoker without any Rizzlers, and that's a smoker without a lighter. Let me give you something to cheer you up. Go on. <laughs> Roxanne, <laughs> you don't have to put on the red light. Those days are over. You don't have to show your body to the night. Roxanne, <laughs> you don't have to. Watch. It's brilliant because it's complete with stops and everything, just like the original. Oh, that is marvelous. Fantastic. So that was, uh, of course, the news that Songsmith, which we've covered before in some depth, which I've been quite impressed by, has just been kind of turned into this massive viral marketing kind of unintentional comedy value. And there's just tons and tons of people. What they've done is they've taken the vocals, uh, so the fan acapella versions of various tracks, fed it into Songsmith, which then works out a new backing track based on the uh, tempo. And then they've, they've redubbed it onto the original video of the pop song, which is brilliant. And Dave Spears, you found this one first. But before I um, before I get you, can I just go and get Rich Hilton, who's just shown up? Mm, so we'll leave it hanging there. Stay tuned, folks. I've got the master tape for Crazy. What, Beyonce? No, Seal. Oh. I've got Ooh. Seal's vocal for Crazy somewhere. Maybe maybe we should feed that into Songsmith. That would be a good I idea. Think, and the polka version. The anyway. polka version. Let's see if Rich is here. Hello, Rich. Good morning, fellas. Hi, nice Hi. to have you. Rich Hilton, of course, uh, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. How are you, Richard? Good to finally have good, you aboard. Uh, it's good to be aboard. I uh, Sorry, I'm a little late. So um, what do you think? Are you going to be buying it? Are you going to be using it? Do you, think they, do, yeah. you think this is, do you think this is actually intentional and it's part of a master plan? I don't care. It's just brilliant. I think that's... There's so many tracks on here that are better than the originals, aren't there? And old Liam Gallagher drinks up uh, my local pub, so I'm going to see if I can download this onto my iPhone and take it up there and play it to him. Wonderwall in a kind of techno, in a sort of very gay techno style. And <laughs> I'm being really impressed. And somewhat I'd love improved to be as well. Fly on the wall for that. Mm, mm. <laughs> you might get lamped, Dave. That's the That's thing. Right. Take a camera. Take a camera. Think, take- of the, think, think of how much you could sell the story for. <laughs> it'd be brilliant i thought i thought it's superb and in fact like mark's saying about uh using the crazy acapella I, you know we've got all these master tapes of um bob marley and um oh god mercy me and all of those i'm really so tempted just to get this and put it in and just see what it comes up with i think it's awesome at so- first i was appalled by it and i think that people in the advert should be hung drawn and cored however yeah, they did a terrible it- cheesy job yeah, yeah. Superb, though. Absolutely superb. Dave Robinson, tell me. Tell me how you feel about it. Well, uh, it's funny because I, I'd, not, uh, I'd not heard about this at all until uh, I was you know, preparing for this podcast. And uh, I, I went to the, to the Songsmith, I went to the, 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 the site and was absolutely gobsmacked by, you know, by Billy Idol's White Wedding, for instance. Oh. Uh, but, but, but then to, to actually go to the Songsmith, the, hello there, this is Songsmith, in that kind of horrible um, Microsoft Hel- voice. Yeah, helpful paperclip. Um, yeah, yeah um, and, to, and to actually hear some of the backing tracks. I mean, it just reminded me, uh, well, uh, initially I thought it was like some kind of mashup thing, but it's rather than kind of mashup, it's more sort of like soggy, soggy potatoes, isn't it, really? <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but I was listening to, listening to some, of the, some of the ones that are on there, and obviously people have gone for the cheesy effect, which is kind of funny for about 30 seconds, and then you think, right, I've heard enough of that, and then I go on to the next one. I mean, it's not, almost not worth doing the whole song, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, unlike apart from White Wedding, well, apart from White Wedding, unlike our friend who did the guitar, you know, the the, re, the Ingrid J. Malmsteen, um, the, the the redoing of the guitar, yeah, the guitar tracks. I can't remember what his name was. The uh, Saint, Finnish guy is called um, Saint San, Saint Sanders, I think he's called. Yeah, I mean, it's finished, wasn't it? Because that that was watchable all the way through because you didn't really know what was going to happen next. But this, I mean, this is still very, uh, this is still very amusing. But I don't know. I guess now it's like the mashup thing, isn't it? It's it's to find out how extreme you can take it and how ridiculous you can take it. But what what really surprised me is that the backing tracks, 
Um, they just sound like Band in the Box from about 15 years ago. Well, they are, mm. Dave. They're driven by Band in the Box. That, they, they've oh. taken the an- Band in the Box algorithms and they've applied it, they've sort of mashed it together with some Garretan sounds. So you get some sounds from Garretan and Band in Box styles, and that's where you go. I mean, right. I've, never, I've, it- never, I've never said that I think this is a brilliant product because it comes Ooh. up with great music. Where I think it would be useful is to come up with Ooh. a bunch of chords as, an, as a starting point for Ooh. maybe some, um, some songs. You know, if you sing something in and you kind of you, you're not very good with chords and not very good at substituting or whatever, you can play with this and it'll give you some ideas. That was the only yeah. thing you wouldn't take the actual thing and release it. Although there are some great ones. I mean, I think I've just got to give you a quick dash of this because this is my favourite of all time, and I think this works brilliantly. Gotta get to the chorus. That'll do. But that's all. (laughs) And and what makes that so great is because he's so goth and so kind of attitudinal in the video. Yeah, there's this kind of (laughs) bluegrass backing. And and it's one of the ones that works really well. There's another one as well, which I won't go into. I'll play. Maybe I'll play us out with that one, which is uh, Eminem uh, called "Ass Like That," (laughs) and that is really good. Uh, um, And uh, somebody said in the DNA says if Songsmith could could uh, generate MIDI tracks, it would be of some use. Well, apparently it can. It can. It outputs MIDI patterns, and I think it'll output a MIDI. Uh, of the melody as well, so it has uses. Anyway, um, right. Because then, if you could reorchestrate it, and you could take that, well, yeah, and that's, then you that's could the point. Make uh, you know, make, yeah, you could make a contrast between the chorus and the verse, and you could do something clever with it. Then it, 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 there's a potential there, isn't there, for sort of cover versions and and people in, singing bars and that kind of stuff. But yeah, Rich Hilton, well, you, yeah, haven't well, had, you haven't had a chance to oh. speak yet. Did Did you hear any of that? I heard it, and I'm looking it over now. I didn't have a chance to research this. I like, don't really know where Microsoft is coming from with this, but it looks interesting to me. I mean, would I use it? No, but it looks interesting to me. I understand. There, well, I, I, is this some way to try to make these songs more accessible to the average person who can then perform some version of them? Is it sort of? No, I don't think it is at all. I don't think it was ever intended for these uses. Somebody just came up with a cracking idea, which was to take the the, vo- the voices and then just resync them to videos. They're not actually put up by. Uh, Microsoft people, I think that the the people Dan and Sumit who made the thing were were actually genuinely just interested in being able to provide backing tracks for people who just couldn't play anything and just wanted to sing something into the computer. Yeah, that is what it was. The original idea was you sat in front of your computer, you sang a melody that you'd got, and it constructed a a band around that and yeah, wrote a song for you. Exactly. So. I mean, the, the the title of this one was um, the, the Songsmith Becomes a Cult com- Comedy Vehicle. So I think it really was unintentional. And that's what makes it sort of so interesting um, as can a I, phenomenon. I wonder if it's doing them can good. Can I admit to something? Yes, Mark. I've got um, rather a lot of Sonic found Sony, actually. Sony Acid libraries, the discs. They used to send them to me. And I went through a phase of doing something very similar with Duran Duran Master tapes and when they were working on the last album astronaut i kept sending them all these really weird mix can i try playing this one yeah yeah go for it Um, but it's not as clever. I mean, I, th- I like the sound of this Microsoft thing because I had to sit down and work out uh, what the chords were myself and paste various different bits of audio in and sort of make 
you know, meaningful decisions about where things should go to do those mix. And I, I found I could do, once I'd got the timeline sorted out and everything, I could do a mix in about half an hour of just dragging random kind of bits of uh, random loops off the Acid Audio CD. So I was sort of sending Nick and Simon these, these mixes sort of every half an hour. They'd get like the heavy metal mix and then the jazz mix and then the did, bluegrass mix. And- did, did you find it helped? Were they kind of, did it send them in directions they were... Um- they were kind of wouldn't have ordinarily gone down or was it just a sort of i think it sent them in the direction of please don't ever send this to anyone (laughs) (laughs) but i mean the point i was trying to make i think it was at the time when there was this guy called um i can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head there was a guy doing a remix for them and he'd taken several weeks and i turned around and said look i could do a remix for you in like half an hour what's the problem why is he taking so long and then i kept sending them mix after mix after mix one particular day um, to prove really your point prove yeah it's like you take this music any direction you want to take it in it's just i know but you that's know, the point you, go. You, you could but you only have one in mind generally i know dave dave <laughs> you sent us the topic dave spears um any more to add to this one? Have you discovered any more gems that we should uh, we should check out? You need to... Uh, all the listeners need to play Roxanne all the way through because at the end there's this really bizarre kind of chord modulation that actually had me rolling on the floor. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, definitely worth it. But it's brilliant. I, but yes, I've heard that. It's weird, isn't it? Really weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, Dave Robinson, you're right, though. I didn't get that far. I was just kind of, yeah, that's fine, that's no, fine. No, because once you've, yeah, you know, the initial joke, then you think, then you want to hear the next one, and then you want to, like the, the Billy Idol thing, I mean, it's just the same kind of banjo picking all the way through. Yeah. And you, you kind of, you want it to do something else, but, but you kind of know it's not. So, you know, it's... What was the heavy metal band that was on there? Was it Whitesnake or... Uh, there's was... a few. There was uh, there was a really good one, David Lee Roth, which was a sort of David jazz... That was the jazz yeah. swing number. And that was, but he, again, but it was preposterous because he's, he's you know, they're doing the kind of um, the rock posturing. Thing. And, and yet they've got this really that, sort of cool kind of double bass and vamping piano background, but in a cheesy way. It just It's the juxtaposition that made it hilarious. And it was quite well a, formed. But... How did it know when he was doing that? Kind of, you know, he does that scream, which is almost like he's singing two notes at once. How did it know what notes to pick for that? That's so, what I want to well, know. I don't know. I, I just want to finish this topic on the on the. I want to play this Eminem one, which I think is cracking. <laughs> Anyway, that was that, but that seemed I to work. Love that. That, it gets I better. Heard that one. That's a cracker. That is. Uh, I, I won't play the chorus because it's a bit rude. Style. Yeah, it's, it's sort of Cossack polka. But he's uh, he's a. Yeah. Know, it, it, it actually does highlight what a great rapper he is, and his lyrics. It makes you listen to the lyrics more, and they're very funny. Actually, those ones. Sounds like time for an ad. This week's sponsor is Roland UK, and they'd like to draw your attention to the Phantom G8. It's a sort of mega workstation. In fact, you can see it in action. Uh, Howard Jones is using it uh, on his current Australian tour. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes, but you can also take a look of it at roland.co.uk forward slash Phantom G. That's one word. It's got a giant colour screen, 128 track sequencer, sounds all go to make the Phantom G8 a professional choice for the all-in-one workstation keyboard. Once again, we'd like to say thank you very much to Roland UK for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you. 
So there we go. That was um, Diego Stucco and music from Sand. I hope I pronounced his um, his name right. And that again was from Dave Spears. You seem to be coming up with all the best one this time, Dave. Um, that he is a sound designer basically, and uh, that whole piece was just made from him kind of rubbing and hitting and pouring sand um, on the beach in a glass bowl, which I guess is where you get some of the notes from. I'm not entirely sure, but it was. Um, I thought it was really, really great. And there's some really, there's some other brilliant sound design things, uh, music made from various inanimate objects as well on, on his uh, site of diegostocker.com. And is it right that he does a lot of stuff for uh, Eric Persing in the Omnisphere library? Yeah. Yeah, Diego's been there for years and years, actually. Uh, I think he started out working with Korg, uh, I think on the Z1, was it? Uh, and then uh, ended up sort of doing loads of stuff for Spectrosonics. But he's brilliant. Diego's one of my favourite people at NAMM because you can s- just sit, we can just sit and talk for hours and hours about sound. There's no ego involved with this guy. He just does what he does and he's brilliantly creative. I mean, this was just as a personal project, so this isn't for any kind of release or any sound library that he's working on. Uh, and I was just blown away with it when he sent me the video. Yeah, no, really impressive. Dave Robinson, you get a chance to uh, check this guy out? Yeah, I was trying to work out how he was making the um, sound like the, sort of the, the glass, um, you know, the, the wine glass, sort of um, the, the high-pitched sounds. Um, I can see how he was recording the percussion sounds, but I was wondering how he, how he did that. I mean, because, I mean, that's, that, you know, just wetting your finger around a wine glass, is, is that some kind of effect? But, um, but it struck me that he's actually quite... Um, you know, he, he's actually quite musical, and he's, he's, he's influenced. He's influenced by Mike Oldfield. So, what he was trying to do there was, was uh, I felt, was was true to what he was dedicating it to, if you like. And he's obviously got some musical talent as well. So, um, yeah, it was very nice. Mm, I thought so. Um, I think he got. He said in the text that he got the pitch by extracting the sort of fundamental tone from um, some of the, the the sound. So, I don't know whether it was from the glass or not. I mean, I guess that's the art of it in some respect. Um, however he did it. Um, Rich Hilton, mm. what did you make of it? I loved it. I, I just loved it. I loved the whole thing about it. I loved watching him do it. I liked the results he got. I thought he assembled them in musical ways. And uh, the mere fact that he thought of it, although now that you say he works for Spectrosonics, it starts to sort of make sense because they do a lot of that sort of thing. But... His use of transducers was fascinating. Mm, yeah, that was an interesting mic uh, choice. He, he, in case you're interested, the McIntyre Acoustic Feather contact microphone, which sounds a bit like it's something that you would buy in an adult store, but um, didn't look like that. <laughs> but I remember when I first got a sampler, you have these all these kind of brilliant thoughts, and you you think I must now get myself a DAT machine because I'm going to go out and sample all these great things in the environment and make wonderful, unheard of, never heard of before sounds and instruments. Of course, I mean the actual reality of that is that most of us don't. And uh, after watching that, I don't think I'll ever bother trying again. To be honest, <laughs> has anybody done that? He's got the weather on his side. He does, yeah. Where is he? He's in California. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all those really nice pictures of outdoors. It was yeah. like, that's never going to happen in the UK. I've had a really oh, busy sorry. day on the beach making sounds. Yeah, I suppose you so. You much wetter textures of it. You could do I've it with... Done, I've done all this with DAT machines and microphones and all that sort of stuff, but not, I have to say, since having children. Once you've got kids, you tend to... I don't know why tend to stop doing it i think your days are filled there, yes and there's a co- there's a constant there's a constant um sort of noise in the background of them which kind of <laughs> would ruin the, the audio but, quality that perhaps you were looking for you know what's the what's the instrument made from um recorded sources that you've been most proud of mark i suspect you might have made a couple an instrument made from recorded sources hmm i'm thinking you know a sampled um, a, a pitched instrument oh oh my favorite one yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose I'm most fr- proud of it. I mean, I found this uh, water pipe in a warehouse in Los Angeles where um, Duran Duran were rehearsing, and it was in the toilet. And when you turn the tap on, it made this <laughs> and then chonk, 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 chonk kind of noise. And I made something using that. That was kind of cool. Nice. Um, Dave Spears, not using one of your own synthesizers. Is this something yes, that you've done yeah. much of? <laughs> Not really, no. Again, the weather over here isn't really conducive to that kind of entertainment, um, unless we wanted 
something that sounded like a thousand toilets flushing. <laughs> this I call running water. Yeah. Yeah. No, we had uh, this kind of sparked off quite a big discussion here with sound designers and whatnot and sort of various favorite sound designers. And I put the question out to various sound designers. Uh, what is the mark of a good sound designer? Uh, and the best reply I got was from uh, one of my faves, it was Howard Scar, who said, uh, apart from 666 in the left lug hole, you should mention that they're pitiful, obsessive creatures who spend all day twiddling with their knobs instead of getting a real job. <laughs> and he's one of the finest. He's do- I, is, I, yeah. According to John Bowen, who I spoke to at NAM, he is going to do some patches for the Solaris, I believe. He maybe doesn't yeah. know this, but apparently he is. No, he does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Howard's just amazing. He's somebody who just knows synthesis kind of inside out. And it's brilliant because this is kind of the discussion that it sparked here is that we've got a kind of brilliant broad spectrum of sound designers as people like Howard and the guy called Hans-Jules Scheffler. Uh, and between all of them, they seem to kind of fill in the gaps. So it's like, it's kind of like creating a nice little painting. They come back with various sounds and you kind of go, oh, I hadn't thought of that one. So, yeah. No, I love sound designers and I think they're all artists. Rich, I, I was just wondering, I mean, do you, because presumably the, 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 the pressures on time and getting things done, you know, you don't get as much time to perhaps explore this area and what with all these sort of sample libraries available, or whatever, do you kind of get the chance or the inclination to create something new and fresh as an instrument from, from unusual sound sources or is it something that you don't have the luxury of time? Not typically, but the best story I have that relates to this topic relates to using bird sounds as part of a piece of music. Uh, where While I did not actually do the field recording of the bird sounds, I was working on a piece for the B-52s with Keith Strickland called um, The World's Green Laughter, which was an instrumental piece he'd written for the Good Stuff album. And uh, I ended up using a sequence that I created of bird sounds to basically motor the rhythm of the B section of the song. Ah, okay. So, so does that count? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> I'd say know. that's a pretty good... I, I, didn't know like, the, I didn't know the birds personally or anything. But no, you didn't it, conduct them. Right, <laughs> right. No, I actually resequenced them uh, using a synclavier at the time uh, and created what I'm still somewhat proud of as uh, an interesting use of of natural sound within an electronic context. Excellent. So that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, that'll do nicely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not a sound designer, and the, the closest I've got to it really was, was recording um, ping-pong balls uh, when I was at university for, for a percussion track, which um, I had them the pinging and ponging across left and right across the stereo, building up and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, making a sort of a, cl- a clicky sort of micro-house track out of, uh, out of ping-pong ball sounds. But I, w- I was going to... Just to add to the to the to the to the debate, as it were, well, to, to the to the, the subject that the actual mark. I would say I'm I was trying to. Once I'm sat here listening to you guys talking about sound designers, I was trying to think of what what how you define a good sound design, if you like. And I think, I mean, as a starting point, I would say it's something that you you play the you play. I'm talking about synthesizers rather than sampling. And I'm thinking back to more of the days of things like the the D50 and you know and the the M1 when we had this mixture of sampling and, and synthesis. Um, and that whole kind of revolution of sort of, uh, of of sound design that came around then, so 87, 88, and you could play a sound, and you'd think it was the most amazing thing ever, but you could still find a use for it. So, uh, yeah. do, do, do you see what I'm getting at? Rather than going into a shop and thinking, well, that's a great sound, but I'll never be able to use that, because it's, you know, what, what, it sounds great, and it's multi-layered, and things go twittering in the background, whatever, but th- there's nothing I can use it for. But I, I, I think of something like, you know, I own a D50, and when I, with it, the Intruder FX, which is the famous sort of breathing, uh, pulsing uh, uh, noise and, and percussion effect on there, that was used on all kinds of records, and Jean-Michel Jarre used it, and Baby D used it, and it was, it was all over the place. And, and it, was a, it was a sound that, you know, it, it sounded complex, but it could still be used. Right. And I think that's the mark of, a, of, of clever sound design. Something like, you know, the what the sound on the Alpha Juno, which is what the, the Prodigy used for the, you know, the, the Hoover sound. And, and um, uh, what's it, Human Resource did, used it on Dominator, and, and Jerry Beltram used it. And, uh, it or even the, the Shakuhachi sound that was used on the, um, that everybody used yeah. uh, at, at around the, 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 the you know, the 1990s that, that was yeah. famous. 
Um, yeah, and the, but, but more famously on the um, on the Sard, you know, um, du, 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 that number one by um, the guy who lives in in um, Ibiza, you know, Enigma. Enigma. Ah, yes. No, no, Enigma. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I that, that kind yeah. of. The, you know that, that that sound that was all over the place, and even though it was it was it was popular, people still wanted to use it. So it's a kind of a sound that's crossed over between. Well, it's not cheesy, but it, it sort of adds credibility to a to the record, and that to me is the mark of of a, of a sound design that um, that really shows that you know what you're doing and you know what consumers want. So yes. there you go. We found recently that musicians, um, you know, good keyboard players and musicians. Are, are turning out brilliant sounds. Uh, we've got this band Eye Monster who did uh, what was their track Daydream in Blue, and they also did yeah. a mix of that Body Rich and the beat goes on. And they're brilliant because they're so quirky, but every single sound that they've provided us is is just so playable. And that for me is the mark of a top sound designer. I, I guess it would be the definition of good sound design, really, wouldn't it? Because if no one you could use it, then it would be kind of useless, I suppose. Um, <laughs> Um, I I totally agree with all of that. And whenever anybody asks me to design sounds for their sound library, I have to explain that they're not going to get anything playable or usable in any way, shape or form. Because I just don't really think, I don't don't think about how it could be played at all. I just, I I don't create sounds from that at all. I create one-off sounds. Right, sort of textural-based stuff. Well, it, it might just be a chain of stuff that I've stuck together and, to create a sound that fits specifically with a certain track at a certain tempo in a certain way, right. and it just wouldn't work anything else. I see what you're saying. So yeah. for me to design a whole load of sounds, most of them probably wouldn't work in anything else. Okay. I, I, I remember old uh, Ed from Time and Space telling me when I used to work on Future Music magazine that the, the David Torn CD that they, that they did, which was these fantastic textures and layers and you know just amazing use of the guitar to produce these amazing sounds but i remember him telling me that you just couldn't just couldn't shift it because nobody could use them for anything so that was i yeah. know you know that's the kind of that's bad sound design in fact uh, oliver says i think i'm going to go outside with my v synth and a mic well good on you oh, i'd love to hear the results <laughs> anyway um, i've just realized I, I was trying to talk him into lending me a V synth, and I said, "I'll make you some sounds in exchange." But I've just realised I've just told him the they're gig. all going to be rubbish. <laughs> unusable. <laughs> I'm going to make you loads of unusable sounds. <laughs> Damn. Right. I, I, I just want to interject quickly at this point. Um, I have a request from Slough, who's a po- podcaster who we met at Nam, who I promised him I'd play him a promo for his upcoming show. So I'm going to play this. This is for sessions with Slough. <laughs> Hello, Nick. Hi, guys. Slough here to tell you and the listeners about a new podcast. Some of you may recall the Sessions with Slough segments I did for the Project Studio Network. Well, I've decided to spin those off into their own podcast called, you guessed it, Sessions with Slough. It's pretty much an audio journal of my world as an engineer and studio owner in New York City. In addition to excerpts from recording sessions... I feature gear reviews, equipment shootouts, and whatever else I feel like talking about. One of the features uh, I'm considering for the show, and maybe you guys could relate to this, uh, it'll probably be me speaking about something audio-related in very geeky terms to my wife, who, whenever I bring up these topics, you know, her eyes kind of glaze over, and she says, would you be able to tell me about this at around 11.30 p.m. or so? I'm considering calling the segment something like, put your partner to sleep, and maybe I could have some lullaby (laughs) music in the background. Anyway, to learn about the podcast, please visit sessionswithslau.com, that's sessions with S-L-A-U dot com, or you could find it in iTunes. Hope you can sit in with me. Nick, your job, Nick. No, well, you know, I just because uh, we 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 were arranged to meet up um, for our famous um, tequila session around the pool, and uh, we just couldn't hook up. So I promised I'd play it as I'd already promised. But there we go. So sessions with Slag, go and check his stuff out. Uh, also, fellow podcaster. Right. Before he, I would say, before he gets divorced. <laughs> okay. So what do we want? Do we want three D didgeridoo or auto tune or Tomita. Tomita. Okay, yeah. well, well, let's do a bit of Tamita and, and see how we go from there. So, uh, I, f- I don't know where I found this from. It just sort of came to me. I'll play you a quick clip. 
Iseo Tomito, who I don't know much of at all, but this is very, um, of its time. Oh. mad kind of stuff it's kind of reminding me of Esquivel but sort of electronic version and I didn't know anything about him um, but I did I was reading up about him and there's one thing that really struck me uh, Tomita has performed a number of outdoor SoundCloud concerts with speakers surrounding the audience in a cloud of sound he gave a big concert in 1984 at Ars Electronica in Linz Austria uh, live mixing tracks in a glass pyramid suspended over an audience of 80,000 people and I thought that alone has got to mean that we must talk about him. So, Dave Robinson, you know about Isotomita. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, uh, I, I actually met him. Uh, I interviewed him about 10 years ago. And, uh, I mean, he's, he's, I, I was checking out how old he is. He's 77 now. So, uh, you know, he was, um, he was 67 then. He, he, he wasn't the fastest moving of gentlemen. But uh, he did this thing. And you can, you can, if you check him out on Wikipedia, you can read a little bit about... Uh, this concert he did called The Tale of Genji, which was a thousand-year-old um, Japanese, I think it's a Japanese tale, written by a woman, famously. And um, he kind of set it to, to music with, with a, like a kabuki um, band and, um, and sort of live soundscaping using a, a VS, a Roland VS 1680 or something like that. And um, I went to interview him in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in, um, in Knightsbridge. And it was one of the weirdest interviews I've ever done as a, as a journalist because uh, he was sat there, you know, this, this, this grand man of electronic music. And he had two assistants and he had a translator and he had a, a UK PR representative and he, he had um, a manager and then he had another journalist from the Herald and Tribune and they were all sat in the same room with me while I was doing the interview. So we're in this enormous suite with all these different women sort of parked different parts of the room and I'm trying to do this interview through a translator because he doesn't speak English and um, it's one of those things where you, you start addressing the questions to him but then you start addressing the questions to the translator rather than to him you know it's very strange anyway it turned out that um, he talked about the fact that he'd got a Moog synthesizer he's got this Moog modular um, 3 you know, and he, how he loves spending hours creating these sounds and I'm thinking yeah right mate you speed it up a bit because I don't think you've got that long to go but anyway um, and he got um, he got a Yamaha keyboard that he used but because it was a Roland event he didn't want to talk about Yamaha and um, we did this. We did this interview, and the interview lasted, I don't know, forty minutes. But there was probably about, oh, it was probably about fifteen minutes of actual interview material with all the backwards and forwards between the translator. And then I went to the concert in the, at the uh, Royal Festival Hall, and the surround sound bit of it, which is what I was interested in, lasted about two minutes, and it was absolutely crap. Oh no. <laughs> So it was really, you know, there, there I am with this elder statesman of electronic music, and and what he was actually doing was was just rubbish. But I mean, that aside, um, it's amazing to, when you actually read about him and the fact that he he like so many people listened to um, uh, Walter Carlos's um, uh, Switched on Bark, and then what he what he did in the seventies was, you know, he got a hold of a Moog and he did it. He he went away from the kind of the the contrapuntal, uh, very percussive and very exact and mathematical music of Bark and did all this impressionistic stuff and something like Snowflakes Are Dancing which is the Debussy covers all these fantastic um, covers of, of the girl with the flaxen hair and, and uh, Gollywog's Skatewalk and all that kind of stuff wah, 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 wah. all these amazing um, and really quite silly sounds 
sounds, but it, but it's all very it's all very beautiful as uh, as as you as, as we heard. And the other thing I was going to say is that um, you talk about the SoundCloud. I think he famously you need to dig around on this, but he famously tried to release a quad album, and I think it was the Bermuda Triangle, which was kind of released in in sort of quad sound. But of course, quad sound never took off because nobody could ever place the n- nobody ever bought a system that that you know was four channels and placed them around the room. They're just the technology didn't exist back then. So. Um, but he's, he's certainly had his moments over the, over the years. Yeah, it's, it's huge. It's a, it's a huge artist. Yeah, it's the seventies. It's Bermuda Triangle and Snowflakes are dancing. It's the albums from the seventies when he's when there was nothing else around. There was no other technology. There was no one else really doing what he was doing apart from Carlos and you know mm. just just a very few people using synthesizers like that. So yeah, Rich Hilton, have you ever come across some um, Tommy? I say Tomita. Oh yeah, ever since the very beginning, and I will echo much of what Dave just said. Um, the Debussy recording was absolutely brilliant, groundbreaking. Nobody would heard anything like it except mm. uh, the Carlos-style interpretation of Bach and some of Carlos's original music up to that point. And uh, there were a very limited number of people at this point who were doing classical realizations in synthesis, which seemed, based on the early Carlos model, to give the whole realm some level of legitimacy that it desperately needed in the face of musicians' unions and everybody else railing against it. And so you had uh, Tomita with a very much more sort of um, uh, programmable, programmably obvious style, where uh, Tomita would really use the synthesizer, he'd use a lot more portamento, he'd work the filters a lot more, he wasn't so concerned with imitative presentations and capturing the original classical feeling of the piece so much as he was reinterpreting it through this modular synth, and I mean, he did yeah. Stravinsky, I mean, and other people did had done, somebody else did Stravinsky, he did the planets, for example, Patrick Gleason was another early uh, orchestral uh, synthesis adopter who did a version of Holst's The Planets. Both he and Tomita, right around the same time, did versions of The Planets, and they both did really, really interesting versions that were incredibly different from one another. Whereas Gleason from the, took the approach of uh, orchestral simulation through analog synthesis, and he was using an EMU system at the time, I guess. Tomita took it much like he had taken the Debussy, except even more extreme. And he just he's working the filters and the portamentos, and he's, there's, there's nothing that's trying to sound like a clarinet in there anywhere. It's just completely synthesized. So to me, Tomita was absolutely a groundbreaking, legendary, uh, formative figure in synthesis. Defined a lot of directions that other people took that that were later seemed to be formative synthesists. And uh, is worthy of enormous respect. Cool. I was, uh, just, it, it seems also there's a lot of humor in what he does. I mean, just listening to that Love Me Tender, it's kind of funny. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be, but it, it seems like it is because it's quite comical, the, the vocal representation stuff. But anyway, Dave, uh, Dave Robbins, uh, Dave Spears, anything, um, anything you have to add on I Say O Tomito? Uh, no, except probably flying in the face of everybody here. No, I, in the 70s, um, obviously I'd, had switched on bark and stuff like that. I was quite excited by this newfangled synthesizer technology. So I went out and bought loads of albums from Tomita, Kitaro, all of those kind of guys. And every single one of them I found completely soporific and uh, never revisited any of them again. It's quite, it's quite sort of um, relaxation tape kind of stuff. To a yeah, degree. I prefer the kind of, you know, um, oh, Jean-Jacques Perry, that kind of really kitsch thing. But I think at the time I was looking for something new and exciting, and this was just kind of representations of old classical things, so it didn't really appeal to me. I think it probably took Frank Ellis or Van Gelis uh, to uh, kind of stir that side of me. <laughs> Mark? Um I don't know, I don't know, and I don't know. I have absolutely no idea who this is, and I don't know anything about it, which means that I must be some kind of a Luddite, right? No, I don't think I'm so. Surprised. Well, I'm I surprised. Didn't, oh. I didn't know either. But you weren't surprised I, at that, were you, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> you thought to date, you kids. <laughs> Get with the 70s, man. Yeah, well, I was seven in the 70s, I suppose. Well, actually, no, I'm older than you. Yeah, I was gonna. I'm, I'm a couple of years older than you, aren't I? So I should I should know this stuff. Well, there you go. I don't. I was too busy being a glam rocker and being into Slade and T Rex. <laughs> did I, but I'm talking about the seventies. Did I, t- I, I did 
Did you know, Nick, I met Keith Emerson in the bar at the NAMM show. No, really? So did we, yes. Yeah. <laughs> was, was he there permanently? <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> Call me Keith. But did you see him, you knocking around the pool at the Marriott, Dave? Yeah, yeah. In fact, Chris obviously used to work for him, so he went up and had a chat. I think it was just before you joined us, Nick. Oh, really? Oh, you were talking about it, yeah, because um, you wondered whether, Chris wondered whether he'd remember him. But he did, I presume. Uh, yes. I think yeah, so. Yeah. Did. Yes. <laughs> right, right. No, after a fashion. After a fashion. Well, I, you know, you spend all day in the bar at the Hilton or the, uh, or the Marriott, and things become a little bit less than clear we managed things became a lot less clear for me and i was only there for about three or four hours so it's just the way it goes right i've got a little bit of a clip here because it's from there's a podcast that goes along with it everybody now twirl your vest around your head and now twirl your thong is it I believe so. This is Josh Turingell, music critic of Time Magazine, and that was the sound of autotune, as used by Cher and T-Pain. So this was uh, a, an article that was in Time Magazine, no less, about autotune by, um, oh gosh, Josh Ty- Tyrangle, who's also, it's an accompanying podcast, which is well worth listening to. It's free, it's on um, it's on iTunes and stuff, I'll put the link in the show notes. And uh, it's quite just quite an interesting kind of um, an analysis of how we've all become used to the public, perhaps, have become used to these perfect vocals. So things, for one of the examples he says, for instance, is, you know, uh, Aretha Franklin, who did her, her, her piece at the um, Obama inauguration, they all sort of go, oh, she's singing a bit out of tune and stuff, because we're just so used to, as a society, listening to vocals that are pitch perfect. And there was another very interesting fact in this, that the Autotune's inventor, a man called Andy Hildebrand, who worked for years interpreting seismic data for the oil industry. Apparently he invented it. Um, he used a mathematical formula called autocorrelation, which would, um, it was something to do with uh, checking the, you know, autocorrection of the waveform that was bouncing up so that you could check the strut of the rock and what have you. And he was challenged at a uh, dinner party um, to help uh, to make one of his guests sing. And uh, he he did in 1996. And that's where the autotune uh, algorithm was born. I say no more. Dave Robinson, I suspect you might have um, an opinion or something to I, add. I, I, I love it when... Uh when things like this come out and cause we, they, they all heard the share thing. And then you, I mean, you, you hear, it's not just, you've heard it on, um, very much on, uh, what was the record? Uh, the, uh, the one that Victoria Beckham did with, uh, Dane Bowers, you know, it was, it was all over that as well. I mean, it, and then, and then suddenly an article comes out, it's something as, as, um, statesmanlike as the as time magazine. And, uh, it's like, Oh really? They actually really do it like this. Um, but sorry, just somebody just coming into the room. I'm going to have to get out of here shortly. Uh, but um, uh, I love it when this happens because it's like uh, it's like that that uh, you know they don't actually bands don't really go into a studio and record all the same time. You know they put tracks down separately and they build up the track like that. Really, is that how they do it? Yeah. And <laughs> oh, classical, it's not as cheating, isn't it? <laughs> classical CDs, you know, it's not just one recording of the orchestra. It's about forty stitched together with an editing bug. Is it really? You know, I, I love the fact that the the, the, um, the, 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 and the national lottery on a Wednesday night. There isn't really any audience. You know, it's all clapping from a tape. Is it really? It's all these things that that kind of the, the public has to be reminded because they they they're too. They're too um, stupefied by the technology, yeah. When it's, when it's quite obvious that this stuff is going on. But I thought it was a great article, and um, I like the fact that Kanye West did a whole album uh, with on um, this 808 and 808 and heartaches when, when he's auto-tuned himself all the way through. But uh, but from the fact that it sounds cheesy, all, my last point I would say is that if you listen to the Pendulum album, which I think is fantastic, um, they, they use it all the time. You know, vocoder effects and and, and auto-tuning effects, and they work it really well because that sort of music. You know, it's kind of robotized, but it's still got some soul to it. So I guess it's how you do it, really. Mm. Well, it's obviously the sound of the moment, really, isn't it? Yeah. Once again. But Autotune are getting, presumably, a bunch of sales out of it. So good for them, I guess. But I like, I, like to, I like the point about, you know, the fact that we're all just becoming so used to the sanitization of singing, essentially. But that's what's, that's what's good about things like X Factor, I think, and Pop Idol, because when you see them on the TV doing your audition, you, you, it almost renews your faith that people actually can pitch, because if they couldn't, then they wouldn't get through. Yes. Well, that yeah. is true. Yeah, no, I think... That's, that, I think one that's, saving, that's almost the one saving grace of programs like that, I think. Anyway, and with that, 
with that, I need to go. Dave Robinson, ProSoundNewsEurope.com. Thanks for joining us. I know you've got to All go. Right, guys. See you later. Speak to you soon. Cheers. And with that, he went. Rich, you, yes. you, you must kind of use auto-tune in some of your kind of work. I mean, because it's, it's one of those engineers' tools. I mean, did you... Uh, We've- Wait, wait, wait. We've been, pitch- we've been fixing the pitch of vocals since 1984 or so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. We weren't using auto-tune back then. What's interesting, culturally, well, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that auto-tune has sort of developed into a generic description of a process whereby it's actually a product, a specific product, one of many products that performs this process. So they're actually benefiting from that. It's much like the way, I don't know if it's the same over there, but over here, sometimes instead of a tissue, somebody will ask you to pass me a Kleenex. Sure. It's like a Kleenex brand. somehow yeah. achieved so much ubiquity in that business that that became the thing you're asking for, not the product that they make. Mm-hmm. And uh, so auto-tune gets mentioned in this whole thing, but the auto-tune is not the only way to do this. There's many ways to skin this cat, and it was skinned for years and years before any of that stuff existed. Um, so then you have the cultural aspect, which Nick raised, which is, do people get used to hearing things a certain way? And I do believe that we have, through the last 25 years of recorded music, trained people to hear rhythm and pitch differently. Um, oh, okay. I believe their tolerances have narrowed for what, is, what they hear as being in or out of tune or in or out of time. And uh, I think we make records to please the people we're playing them to now. And as such, um, technologically, there is a point, there is a use to this insofar as it can separate the delivery of the emotional content from the precision of the musical performance. And what it allows you to do is get really more emotionally charged recordings without so much consideration for the pitch, which you know, should it go completely awry, you can do something about I tend to try to use it as invisibly as possible. And um, this, it's funny because this year I noticed that there are companies pitching their pitch correction products based on the way they glitch this kind of thing, (laughs) which is fascinating to me because not only has it become stylistically desirable, but look, we're going to build products that glitch better. You know, whereas in 1993, when I'm doing all these background vocals with David Lee Roth on a Digitech vocalist, I'm spending all day getting rid of the glitches. You know, today, I could have I could have done them in 30 seconds. It's like back then, I was like working my butt off to try to get the glitching out of the process as much as possible. So, uh, apart from all that irony, I believe there is uh, a artistically valid, practical way to apply digital pitch fixing to vocal performances so that it enhances their dramatic quality while retaining a little more musical uh, accuracy without completely overwhelming the production with the sound of the thing, as in the examples that have been cited here. Mm, I think that's a really, that's really well put, actually. And it kind of, what it does, it outlines, I mean, things like, you know, the White Stripes. I mean, I happen to think, you know, Icky Thump was a great record, and I doubt very much if it had any autotune. And the immediacy and the rawness of the sound was so refreshing to a degree that, um, yet it was presented in a kind of highly pop kind of sound world as well. Um, I just, you know, that they kind of, you can use that to your advantage because you become so different to everything else by not being perfect. I wonder if the emotional content of music hasn't got to do with the timing. And if you start moving stuff around, doesn't that change the emotional content? Same as the tuning. If somebody sings flat, that's going to have a pull on you emotionally. It's almost like if you pull something towards a minor key without actually going into minor, does that not have like some kind of an eerie kind of soul wrenching pull on you? Which, if you tune that out, are you not removing some of the emotional content from the music? Mm-hmm. And when I want to get really fired up, if I want to listen to a track that really fires me up, I'll listen to either Chinese Rocks by Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. And you're lucky if the guitars are in time with the drums for half that record or anything else, or they're definitely not in tune. And uh, the vocals are all over the place. Or if I want to get really fired up, I'll listen to Iggy and the Stooges. And you're lucky if Iggy pops in the same bloody bar as the rest of the band, let alone the same beat. I mean, he sings such weird... He sings the lyrics over such weird cadences and timings and stuff, but it works in a really cool way. And you come away from that feeling like, yeah! You know, I can't say the 
the the, sure. the feeling because you'll have to bleep it out. But there's a real kind of attitude of like it doesn't matter if I'm singing on the beat or not. I'm just like I'm so cool and 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 that charge of excitement and energy you, it comes across in the music. And when you listen to it, you sort of take away something of Iggy Pop's character in you after listening to it, and you the feel un- a certain the unpredict- way. The unpredictability of it gives it a certain well, makes it unpredictable and more exciting as a result. Yeah. So if we tie, if we put him in time and tuned him, I think it would just sound ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you're probably right. Which I, and I've never understood that about Niall. Why does Niall want to put his guitar on the grid, so to speak, when he has his timing, his signature, the signature of his timing is the thing that makes it so cool. To take that and to time correct it seems like an odd thing to do to me. But it's. I mean, he's obviously doing things the way he does them. Maybe he's always done that. I don't know. Um, I can't speak for him, but I can tell you, well, I think I know what he likes about it, which is the tightness, but I understand where you're coming from entirely about the timing and the pitch determining all of, basically conveying most, if not all of the emotional content. And um, I don't disagree with anything you've said. And uh, what I will say, though, about the way I approach gridding anything these days is rather than go working from the inside out where I define each 16th note and put it to a grid, I define it from the outside in where I find the bar lines and uh, via elastic audio move the bar lines around the outside first and then in through the middle. And I fix as little as possible in order to retain as much of the original feel as possible. Oh, okay, cool. Mm. So it's, it takes on a more musical presentation at the end rather than working from the inside out where you've basically moved everything because once you move anything everything else sounds out of place okay yeah that that's, that makes a lot of sense so the other thing that i want to say about autotune is if you tune a note the slurs up to and away from that note are predefined in autotune and in, and in the end all singers will end up sounding the same and the most bizarre thing is that people will end up uh singing with that kind of slur so new singers that come along who've heard autotune for 10 years are now trying to sing like they've been autotuned and some people are trying to sing like they've been format shifted there's a lot of female singers around at the moment who actually sound like someone's bunged them through autotune and formatted them up a couple of semitones you know Ah. all these do you think that might be sort of really subconscious they don't realize that's what they're actually trying to emulate they just go i want to sound like this stuff that has been influencing me but yeah Yeah, that's that's really and i think they're starting to take on that sort of pro you know whatever the whatever the programmer put in as how to get from one note to the next note as the default which is probably what most people will use most people won't sit around redefining that curve they'll just use what is already there and Mm. as that becomes more and more the sound we you know people are going to be singing like that and influenced by it and it's weird because it just well, it's just weird <laughs> well again again it's how you use it because for example i almost never don't move the ramp up to the note when i'm moving the note i move the whole thing if i'm moving it at all right cuz i don't want to shave off the top part of it if you know what i mean with a pitch with a pitch line whether i'm using autotune or uh, melodyne or whatever i'm using you can, you, I mean, again, it's it's the musical application of the tools. It's like the guns; <laughs> they don't shoot themselves. The tools don't, you know, ruin the performances all on their own. It's it's the people who want to just, you know. Yeah, I think. That, I, I mean, what's ever. interesting about this article is obviously he's talking about the actual the stylized the stylistic uh, uh, application of auto tune and this kind of thing. Dave, did you um, did you get a chance to find the podcast? I only found it today, um, or did you read the article? I read the article, yeah. No, fascinating, actually, listening to Rich and um, Mark, because I I do remember, you know, spinning in lines with the bloody S950 years and years ago, where people were, you know, flat on certain notes and stuff like that. I mean, it was incredibly tedious. And when Melodyne came out, it was like, that was invented for me. And I love the subtlety that you can get with Melodyne and stuff like that, whereas I'm not a massive fan of the kind of signature auto-tune sound, and, except actually on that Britney Spears Piece of Me track, because everything was so synthetic about it that it just kind of it just kind of got 
hit you right in the middle of the head. I have found another way of getting a similar effect without actually using Autodyne, uh, Autodyne, <laughs> uh, tune, and that's to flick, <laughs> flick your throat as you're singing. Cool. So you can get that kind of staccato-y kind of, you know, pitch uh, glitching. I rest my go. case, actually. <laughs> yeah. I rest my case. There's going to be a whole load Very of kids good. out there who figured this out as well, based on the 100 monkey syndrome. Thing. I think we've just got the title of the podcast right there. Throat flickers. <laughs> Flick my throat. <laughs> but it's funny about people that... Uh, you know, like Mark, both Mark and Rich were saying, people just becoming so used to something that that's what they expect from now. And I remember millions of years ago being around the, you know, the Human League albums and stuff like that. And then coming out of the same studio and playing my sister a Dex's Midnight Runners track. And she just listened to it and went, it's out of time. Right. So it was kind of interesting because she'd grown up with that whole, you know, early Duran stuff and the Human League stuff where everything was very rigid. But there there, there is still, I was listening to um, some of the Beyonce stuff, you know, Crazy in Love and uh, Work It Out. They are really out of time. I mean, Crazy in Love, the vocals are totally out of time over over the track, but it's sort of works in a feel kind of way and i'm sure she did i'm sure what happened perhaps in that track was it was remixed underneath the vocal but i mean it, you you can forgive it. it just i don't know what the parameters are but yeah that's an interesting another interesting point um that once you because when you do listen i mean and you know i i'm sure you must get it rich or mark when you've been working on something and you are working to a grid for whatever reason you know because it might need it or you know whatever and then you listen to something else and you think christ that's so out of time how did they let that through you kind of get yeah. over analytical, don't you? Completely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. That's what's happening to us as a listening audience. You know, not necessarily us as professional audio people, but the general kind of listening audience is. It, it, there are expectations are being raised to the point where it will only sound any good if it's actually been assisted by robots. In effect, I mean, I, I have a terrible time recording. I start off with an idea on an acoustic guitar, and I'll plump you know pick around it and then i'll go well I'll just put that in the computer so <clears throat> i try not to put a click on and i'll just record what i was playing into the computer and then work out the tempo from what i was playing which is a start away from letting yeah. robots do it sure and then mm-hmm. i think oh, i'll just loop that and then i'll see what else i can find around that and once i've looped it and then i start going oh no that bit I played it better the second time, that bit. And then I make up a composite out of, you know, maybe I've got one riff and I make a composite riff up out of about six or seven different parts and then I glue it all back together and then I loop it. And then I start making sure it's in time. By the time I've done that, I, you know, I've already got, completely the lost gone. the concept yeah. of band, haven't I? I'm, whereas if I was sitting in a room with three other guys and we were playing around this riff idea that I'd got, it would develop in a very different direction to how it does in the computer and then you start adding other stuff and listening and going oh that's slightly out of time and then you get into this whole fixing things kind of thing and you fix one thing and something else then sounds out and you fix that and then it almost always ends up sounding like the whole thing's gridded and looped which right. i suppose is partly my sound but then at the same time it's the sound that i say that i would like to get away from so well, well, when you're working on a band when you're working alone, it's hard not to want to go there, first of all. Yeah. And, and in just in broader terms, in terms of creative process, it seems to me that in our culture, there are two ways of going about it. One is capturing a, an event that takes place in time, within that time, and calling that event the, pro- the process, the recording, and that's what it is. Everything else is some form of montage, where you're taking elements from point a and point b and combining them in hopefully interesting ways but it essentially amounts to what is uh, in visual art known to me as montage or if you want to call it so sculpture where you're taking one part at a time Mm. and making Mm. and um and once you leave that domain of real time once it ain't just two microphones in front of a string quartet you're basically, and even then, as Dave Robinson pointed out, in the classical recording world, it's not even that there. But then you're into some form of montage where you're assembling bits. 
Now, whether you're assembling them on a grid or not, or whether you're using auto-tune or Melodyne, or you're not using any of it. I mean, there's, all, there's a thousand questions that get answered along once you go down that road. And, you know, whether I should take measure three from the second eight bars instead of from the first eight bars because it's just cleaner played, or whether I should take the one in there that was there and just, like, you know, elastic audio it around a little bit until it works. You know, like, it... It's all, it all becomes very subjective at the point where you leave that real-time realm. I mean, for most of us, anyway, real-time is not where it's happening. Um, but I, we could go on for a long time now. This is a very interesting topic, and I appreciate you uh, expanding on it um, very much so, because it raises a lot of very, uh, very cool questions and points. But sadly, we have to stop because uh, I've got to dash and get out of the building before they turn the alarm off on even <laughs> so i'd like to say thank you very much to my guests for joining me this week um mr rich hilton from connecticut who uh, uh i i hope you have a, a a good and fulsome day capturing some great recordings in real time i'm rebuilding my new mac pro for the still for the well actually I only got started yesterday ah okay um and there's lots to do but it's working really well and it's a beautiful computer very Wonderful. Pleased. I'm very envious. MySpace.com forward slash Hiltonius uh, for what Rich is up to. And Mark Tinley, uh, thank you for joining us also. You're very welcome. Can I give you a recommendation? Sure. For this week? Please. It's a bit of an odd one. I, I couldn't find the SD card for my Zoom H4, and I went to Tesco's last night shopping. While I was in Tesco's, I found Sun's Disk, Four gigabyte SD cards. I guess yep. how much they were. Uh, Seven quid. Wow, that is cheap. Wow. And I thought, so that's my bargain of the week, definitely. So Tesco's, if you're in the UK, four gigabytes SD cards, seven pounds. Not a bad bargain. Okay, well, Mark, thank you very much. Um, Mark, I am, we're talking the logic of, what's it, the logic of attraction or logicofattraction.com? Which one? Well, it's both, actually logicofattraction.com or thelogicofattraction.com if we're talking about the URL, but the book is called The Logic of Attraction, and yours is on its way. Thank you. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yay! And uh, Dave Spears, g4software.com, thanks for taking time out. I know you're busy at the moment. Thank you very much. Good fun. Yeah, no, covered some interesting grounds. We uh, we missed a few topics. We're getting a backlog of topics to join up, so uh, that's it for this week, and I'll um, speak to you all again soon. Thank you very much. The way you shake it, I can't believe it. I ain't never seen a dance like that The way you move it, you make my pee-pee go